Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 John chapter 4. This book of 1 John is really a, a special book. And we've seen as we've been going through the book that John basically introduced the whole idea of the book in the first chapter, and he just continues to emphasize and expand upon that which he is communicating. And basically what John says over and over again through this short book is that God really loves you unconditionally by His grace and freely. And because He loves you, if you respond to that love, you will have a connection with God. You'll have fellowship with Him. It will allow you to be abiding in Him and Him abiding in you. There's this amazing intimacy that you can have with God personally. And what that does ultimately is that it causes us to, as a result of Him loving us, we get to the point where we are also able to love others. And that's what the Christian life looks like, receiving God's love and giving out His love. And then a big emphasis throughout the book is the assurance that comes of knowing that you are right with God, knowing that you are secure and abiding in Him. And a couple of times through the book, he also veers off a bit to remind us that this isn't always going to be the majority opinion. When you want to live a life of fellowship with God, when you desire to walk in His love, a lot of times people aren't going to go along with that very well. And back in chapter 2, he talked about the spirit of Antichrist that's, that's happening in the world right now where there are those who are working completely against that which Jesus wants to do. Sometimes, though this is very simple, what he is describing, responding to God's love, sometimes it's not easy because of opposition. He returns to that idea here in chapter 4 in the first six verses, and we'll look at those this morning. But what he wants to let us know is just because there's opposition, shouldn't it, that shouldn't cause us to lose our faith in, our understanding of the fact that God's love really works and that God really does want to work in a powerful way in our lives. And really, what I see in these first six verses and what I entitled the message is, you can't lose. This is God letting us know. This is John sharing with us the fact that no matter what happens, this life of love and fellowship, this closeness with God as it's worked out in our lives and allowing us to love each other, this is something that you can count on. This is something that you can be sure of. And in here, he refers to them as the beloved because sometimes we don't feel like we are loved. And he also refers to us as his little children. You are of God, little children, in verse 4. And I, and I see that word for little children means really a baby or a toddler. And what I see in these first six verses is the apostle John is taking 
those who he loves and who God loves, and he's giving them those words of encouragement. He's been laying the groundwork for the kind of relationship that we're to have with God, but now he is coming to them, and, and like a father holding their little child on his lap and telling them, yeah, sometimes it's hard, but you can do this. This will actually work. And, and encouraging a child, maybe you've had the privilege of having a memory of being a little child and having your parent hold you on their lap and, and whispering to you. Maybe it's after things haven't gone well. Maybe you've had a hard time or you've been disciplined and they held you close and let you know, hey, it's okay. You're forgiven. You can do this. You can keep going. Maybe it was before you were anticipating something that was difficult. Um, I, I frankly don't remember that kind of nurturing from the side of a child, but boy, I sure remember doing this for my kids. And, and that's the kind of talk that I think John is having with us right now. He's pulling us close. He's holding us on his lap as someone who is older and who had been around and who's been through these things. And he's just assuring us that, you know, you can't lose. It's going to be okay. You can do this. Beginning with verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In this passage, we see that there is certainly a problem to this life that God has designed for us to live. God has been sharing with us His passionate love for us and the certainty that He is our Father, that He will always be with us, that there's nothing that we can do that will disrupt that. All we have to do is agree with Him and confess our sins. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And we are close to Him, and we will be with Him forever. We abide in Him, we stay with Him, and He with us. And that is a powerful truth when we come to understand it. Because what it does, as we've been seeing throughout this book, and as we will see next week in the rest of chapter 4, the result of that kind of security allows us, frees us up to love others. It's hard to love others until you understand that you are loved, because loving others, not knowing if you are loved or not, is a great risk, because a lot of the people that you love won't love you back. And so 
to live life as a gamble of trying to extend yourself and then getting cut off at the knees and then backing up and going, I'm, uh, that's it, I'm never going to love anybody again. But then you go, man, but I need to be loved. And so you try to love again and you, know, you reach out again and then the door is slammed in your face and, and you go, but I, gotta, I need love and so I have to try to love. And yet we are so inconsistently loved by those we reach out to that often we just get to the point where we go, forget it on love. This just doesn't work for me. But it's God's love that's consistent. And when we understand how He loves us, then we are able to respond to that love, that completely, that free gift of love, that unconditional love, that then we are able to love others. The problem is there are a whole lot of voices in this world that tell us something different than what God tells us about ourselves. God wants to do nothing but encourage us. He wants to do nothing but draw us close. He reached out and loved us, and this is how we know love, is because when we had nothing to offer to Him, He loved us perfectly and completely. And that's such a beautiful truth that when we understand it, then we are free to love, not having a a compulsive need to make sure that that love is always reciprocated, because sometimes it isn't. Often it isn't. And never will it be reciprocated to the degree that's satisfying in the way that God loving us is. And so here's the thing. The voice of God is speaking to us. It's been speaking to us from the very beginning. Everything that God ever wanted to communicate to people, He's been telling you and He's been telling me, I love you perfectly and completely and freely. However, in this world, there are a whole lot of other people who are telling us different things. There are a whole lot of false prophets who would tell us that we can only be loved if we do something worthy of love. And then there's an entire assortment of voices in this world that are telling us you're not good enough. You are a failure. There's a, there's a devil, literally, whose passion and, and desire is to accuse us, is to condemn us, is to even before God tell God that we aren't worth his efforts. And he is constantly whispering in our ear. And every false prophet has this in common like the father of lies, they are all lying to us, telling us things that are contrary to the message of love that the gospel gives us. And so we have all of this input. It comes in different forms. False prophets, there are a bunch of different ways of doing it. See, that's the nature of truth. Truth is there's just basically one truth. And then there's an assortment of lies that are alternatives, that are options. And so the devil knows how to come from all sorts of different angles. But the thing that every false prophet has in common with each other is that they are all trying to rob us 
of the security that we have in the love of Jesus Christ. They are all trying to tell us it can't be that easy. He can't possibly love you. And here God is encouraging us, telling us we are safe and secure in his love. God is telling us there's nothing that you can do that's going to gross me out or turn me off or cause me to turn my back on you. I sent my son and he died for you so that all of your sins could be put on him. And all you have to do is agree with that and you are absolutely forgiven and you are secure. You're abiding in me. I'm abiding in you. And now when you're secure in his love for you, it frees you up to love others. Any kind of love for others that's based on the lie that love has to be earned is an inferior love, and it'll end up burning out. And frankly, most of what we see in our lives as love generally is a bit twisted because there have been these lies, there have been these false ideas that have been promoted, and so we kind of want people to love us back. Because we've been so indoctrinated toward that kind of conditional love, which really isn't love at all. But here, John is letting us know, despite the fact that people are lying to you, despite the fact that ever since you were a little kid, people told you that you weren't good enough, people made you feel like you had to earn some sort of position with God and with them despite the fact that throughout your whole life you've heard the voices of condemnation, judgment, conditional love, rejected love, despite the fact that when you've tried to love, it comes back in your face, yet I'm telling you, John would say to us, he says, you can know the difference. You can tell the difference between a lie and the truth. You are able to to discern this, and he gives us the responsibility and really the privilege as well to test the spirits. He doesn't say, you know, yeah, you're just a victim. He says, you are able to test the spirits. You are able to know the difference between a lie and the truth, and it's essential that you do this. And he doesn't say, you know, don't worry, I'll sort it out. He, he commands them. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You guys, whatever voice we hear, we have a responsibility to not just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. We have a responsibility to match it with what God has revealed to us, to compare it to what he has shared with us about ourselves and then make a decision as to whether or not we are going to give credence to that voice that we've heard. And for some of us, this might mean even looking back at the programming that has happened in our lives during our entire life. Who I think I am before God is so many times a product of voices that I heard. And many of us, though, we were told this is God, yet so often the way that God was communicated caused us to either fear Him, resent Him, or feel like we need to placate Him 
feel like that we need to somehow, like, like pagan gods, you need to throw somebody in the fire, you need to you know, suffer yourself in order to, to cause God not to be mad at you. And it's important for us to look at those voices and call them for what it is. Those are lies. That's false prophecy. Real truth is God's unconditional love for us as was shown in Jesus Christ. And he says, you can tell the difference. You can sense the difference. You have the Spirit of God in you, thus you can know the difference. But you need to be prepared because there are many false prophets in the world. Most of what you hear from the world, most of what you hear from other people, most of what you've been told all your life is lies. Because it's so much easier to make up a bunch of lies than to continue to tell a singular truth. And so the truth is in a minority. The truth is the most glorious thing imaginable, but there are a whole lot more lies out there than truth, and there are a whole lot of false prophets. Now, back in chapter 2, he had talked about these same false prophets, and he said, one way that you can tell who they are is false prophets will basically deny the Trinity, will basically deny the, by the Spirit the relationship of the Father and Son. But here he uses a little different litmus test. And beginning in verse 2, he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. It's comforting that you have the Spirit of God living inside of you and that you are capable of knowing the difference. You don't have to be a victim of other people's lies. You don't have to sucker for whatever it is that the devil's tossing at you. You have the Spirit of God, and you can tell the truth from a lie. You have to trust your ability to do that. And then he says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. This is a, these are a couple verses that I think are sometimes misunderstood by people, and I've heard them um, misinterpreted at times, I think even by myself at times, <laughs> because we act like what he's saying is, if someone is able to say, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, then they're right on. And if they can't say that, then they are wrong. Here's the problem, let's face it. There are all kinds of people who are totally wrong who would still say, oh yeah, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It's not hard, even for a demon, to say this. I've seen that happen with demons because they lie. So they have no problem saying this. And there are all sorts of people, there are all sorts of, of cults, for instance, who, who don't even believe what the Bible says about Jesus, and they certainly don't have the Father living inside them by the Spirit, but they would still say, almost every false religion would say, has Jesus Christ come in the flesh? And they would go, Sure, you could talk to Muslims and say, has Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Of course. Now, there are people often in the commentaries, they will make this an issue between people who were called Gnostics 
and Orthodox Christianity. The Gnostics were a group of people who actually believed that Jesus Christ wasn't a real man, that he wasn't in the flesh. And they believed that he was just like a ghost. They, the Gnostics would teach that when Jesus walked on the sand, he didn't leave footprints, that when he stood there, he didn't cast a shadow. And so a lot of people take this and just go, John is attacking Gnosticism. And you'll read that in a lot of commentaries. The problem with that is that Gnosticism was not a major issue at the time that John wrote 1 John. In fact, Gnosticism did not really become a a predominant philosophy among pseudo-Christians until the second century. So you could say, well, they're pre-Gnostics and he's dealing with that. But I don't see that for the average person, it's going to be a great comfort to go, great, I can tell if someone's true or not, do they believe that Jesus was human? And I think this statement, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, has to mean much more than just to assent that Jesus was a human in a physical body. Because you can believe that and still not be secure in your relationship with God. I think the key to this phrase is the word confess. Confess doesn't just mean, yeah, I'll say that, I'll vote for that, I'll agree with that. As you remember from our studies in 1 John chapter 1, when he says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, we talked about this word confess. It's the Greek word homo legeo, and it means to say the same thing, to really agree at its depth. And it isn't just referring to what you can state with your mouth. Anyone can say anything. Anyone can agree with anything and then just change the definition of the terms so that it fits what they believe. But what it's describing, Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, um, is a huge and an important statement. It's the, it's the picture of what we call the incarnation, Jesus Christ becoming flesh. It, it would assume his pre-existence, and in fact his divinity, because he couldn't be the one who will save the people from their sins, which the name Jesus refers to, and he couldn't be the Messiah without matching up every prediction of the Messiah. So just the fact that it says Jesus Christ identifies him as more than just, oh, that's his first and middle name. It identifies him with scriptures like Isaiah 9, 6. That says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So what he's saying is, first of all, that Jesus Christ is the anointed one who will save the world. But also it says that he has come in the flesh. And the idea of him coming makes clear the idea that he existed before he entered our physical universe in the way that he did as a child. And that's why in Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, yes, but also unto us a son is given. And so here in this 
statement, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It's also believing in something that happened that he was always preexistent. John emphasizes this a lot, of course, over in his gospel. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All of this is locked up in this expression. And then the fact that He has come in the flesh also means that God became a person. God became one of us. He reached out to us. He created this bridge whereby now He could die for us. He could also be our high priest because he knew what we were going through. So it's a, it's a broad statement. It's a powerful statement of theology. But beyond that, it's something that is to be confessed. It's something that is to be at the heart agreed to, to be on track with. And this is, where, this is what I think John's point is in using this as a, as a litmus test for whether something's right or wrong, think about it this way. If you look at what someone is telling you, if you hear what they are saying, is it incarnational? That is, is it consistent with what it means that Jesus Christ became one of us? That He's God? That He became a man? that He came to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, be the Messiah, and to die for our sins. And that's huge because whether or not you really believe in the incarnation is going to determine to a great extent how you live your life. Because if I am agreeing with Him, homo legeo, I am in principle and in the depth of my character I am saying, yes, this is what he did. That is going to have a huge impact on how I treat other people. Because if I really understand the nature of incarnation, then I too, as I model, as he has modeled for me how to live, and now I take that model and apply it to my life, I am also connecting with others, incarnating for others. I'm going to be empathetic. I'm going to be reaching out. I'm going to be inspired by what He did for me. And, and I want that message to be carried across to others. So the real question is, the dependability of the input that you get from people will be hugely affected by whether or not you see that incarnation of Jesus Christ manifested in how they build bridges, how they connect with others, how they live their life. And it's clear that there are some people who definitely have been touched by the heart of Jesus. And in the same way that He has built that bridge to us and connected with us, there are some people who have that same connection for others because they have been so touched by that truth. And what John is saying is, believe those kind of people. Don't look at someone and just assume that what they say is valid. Because if they are talking down to you, if they are judgmental, if they are living the kind of life that somehow they think that they have earned something, don't believe what they say. Don't give credibility to who they are because 
the way that you can tell when someone is speaking from God is that not only that they believe in the incarnation, but the incarnation is transforming them as well. And so I think that's what he's saying by this is how you know the Spirit of God. There are some people who would say, oh yeah, I believe in the incarnation, but if they aren't really living it, are they really confessing it? Has it really got a hold of their life at the center of their being? And I'm convinced that a lot of people who mentally assent to the deity of Christ and to his incarnation and his real humanity have never been so touched by it that it's become a part of their character. And then he goes on and, and says in verse 4, this, this assuring and reassuring statement, you are of God, little children. You are of God. I love that. And he says, and you have overcome them, those who lie. That word overcome means literally to conquer. You've already won. You cannot lose if you are his child. If you are trusting him and allowing the Spirit of God to work in your life, you don't have to worry about, oh man, but they have such good lies. Oh man, but Satan's so powerful. Oh boy, but we are so outnumbered. Because now you've already won. You have already won. Like Gideon, who went up against the Midianites, and they had hundreds of thousands of soldiers on their side, and Gideon had only 32,000 ill-equipped soldiers, and God said, Gideon, you still have too many. 32,000 against at least 150,000? Nope, I don't like those odds. Gideon's like, yeah, I don't like them either. God goes, yeah, you have too many. So he says, tell everybody, just announce, hey, if you're scared, go home. So he said that, 22,000 of the 32,000 went home. Now there's only 10,000 left. Probably all 10,000 who were in the back and didn't hear that you could go home if you're scared. <laughs> so now he's got 10,000 against 150,000 Midianites, and God says, I don't like these odds either. Gideon's like, tell me about it. He said, take them down to the brook, tell them to get a drink. And if they drink like a good soldier where they're watching the horizon as they scoop water into their mouth, then keep them. If they just go dunk their head in the water, they're not good soldiers, I want you to send them home. 300 guys drank the way you're supposed to. All the others of the 10,000 just went and stuck their head underwater and got a drink. Now again, I'm guessing that the first 300 guys probably did it right, and then once they saw, hey, if you just stick your head in the water, he's letting you go home. And so most of them, just as soon as they got there, they're probably just diving in, swimming around, cliff, coming off the cliff. And, and so they're like, woohoo, we're out of here. So now there's 300 guys, but they won. They defeated the Midianites by the power of God. And God is here assuring us as he holds us close to himself. He goes, you have already conquered. You cannot lose because you're mine and I love you and all of my power is at your disposal. You have overcome them because he who is in you 
is greater than he who is in the world. How I love that statement. Because Satan barks really loud. He can be frightening. He does tricks just to impress us often. He, he, he is able to, it seems like he attacks us when we are at our weakest. And it feels like God's not even there. It feels like Satan's just running us over and he frightens us. But our Lord just holds us close and says, I'm telling you, I am in you and I am much greater than anyone else. So 300 against 150,000, no problem. I'm telling you, you have the greater power. You cannot lose. And it's so important that we keep remembering this all the time. The odds may look like they are stacked against us, but in reality, we have all that matters, the power of the God who made us, and it's true that we cannot lose. Whatever it is that Satan does to hurt us, to tear us down, to destroy us will only make us stronger and will only make the victory that much greater. Because we worship a God who says, when you are weak, I am strong. And actually, my strength is perfected in your weakness. I am with you. My power is greater than the power of anyone or anything that would be against you. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then he says in verse 5, they are of the world. <laughs> those people who lie to you, those people who would try to make you feel defeated, those people who would tell you what's the use, those memories that you carry in your head from the past that haunt you and, and, and tear you down, that's of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Yes, most people believe lies. So most of the voices that you hear are going to be coming from that position, from the world. But, verse 6, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He says, if you are of God, as I am sharing this truth, there is something inside your heart that's just going, I believe this. This sounds crazy, but the Spirit of God must be in me because something is telling me that this is truth, that this is the voice of God letting me know I cannot lose. I have to win. I've already won because he is greater than whatever it is that's against me. And in fact, when most of what I hear is, you can't do this, and I hear one faint little voice saying, yes, you can do this, then I have confirmation because always in this world, the majority is wrong something I take comfort in often when there's an election. <laughs> that ever since the beginning, as my, my seminary professor, Dr. Feinberg, told us one time, he said, in the beginning, there were two people, and they took a vote, and they were both wrong, and the majority has been wrong ever since. 
So all we have to do, based on what God's Word says, is, okay, where is the predominance of the evidence? What do most people think of me? What do I hear coming up over and over again? That's a lie. And when I sift that out, and I hear the sole voice of God, and once in a while, in a rare instance, it'll be coming forth from people who are encouraging me to not believe what everyone else is saying, but to believe what God is saying, to believe the gospel. Then I recognize and I realize that's the voice that I want to hear. And when you hear that voice, when you come to tune in to that voice, that's the voice that's the voice of truth. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you and sharing with you the, the love of God, the grace of God, the reality that He is holding you, that He is inside you and you are with Him and nothing can ever tear you away from Him. Nothing that you ever do will disrupt that relationship with God because it's all based on what Jesus Christ did. And when your heart has responded to that gift when your heart has responded to His grace, then you know that's the voice you want to hear. And all those other voices, they're just wrong. They're just lies. And so John here, speaking for our Lord, says, listen, if you have truly given your life to Jesus Christ, you cannot lose. It's impossible for you to be defeated. Whatever happens, no matter how bad it may look, it's going to turn into something really good because God is greater than anyone else. And His voice is true when everyone else is lying. Don't listen to what everyone has to say about you and take a vote. Listen to what God says about you. Listen to the love that He has for you. And go with that. And then when you hear someone who what they are saying aligns with that, reminds you of the incarnation, you see people who are literally incarnating into your life. They're connecting with you and their voice sounds like that voice of the Lord and His grace. Then you go, there's one. That's someone I can listen to. That really is the voice of God. Is it gracious? Then it's coming from Him. Is it judgmental? Is it, is it putting you down? Is it tearing you up? Most of them will. But that's called a false prophet. And he says, you can tell the difference. The Holy Spirit can help you to see and discern the difference. And you have a responsibility to decide which voice you're going to listen to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to know the difference between lies and truth, how those lies have hurt us, how they've destroyed us, and yet, Lord, life is ours because of what Jesus did for us. Help us to listen to the truth of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning,